can empowering women power up the climate movement? Climate One Conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. We often talk about climate change and gender equality as separate issues, but the truth is that throughout the world, women's empowerment is directly linked to the climate fight in many ways, from food security and economic independence. I have never in all of my work met a woman who wanted to stand in a line for food. Everyone wants to feed their own children. To education, reproductive freedom, and power. 80% of farmers in Africa are women. How are they going to be able to run their work if every year they have another child? It impacts on their health, their ability to be able to work. On today's program, we'll talk about some of the ways that empowering women and righting gender inequities can make a difference in the battle against climate change. Joining us from their homes are three guests on the front lines of the social justice struggle. Earthring Cousin is former executive director of the World Food Program and currently a visiting scholar at the Stanford Center on Food Security and the Environment. Musimbi Kanyoro is former president and CEO of the Global Fund for Women and presently chair of the board at United World Colleges. She's joining us from Nairobi. And Corrine Sanchez is executive director of Tewa Women United, a grassroots organization in New Mexico. Last December, Musimbi Kenyoro and about 100 other women journeyed to the bottom of the world to learn more about climate change. Indeed, going to Antarctica was quite uh, an experience for me. Traveling with women scientists from many different fields meant that we could learn about the impact of these fields because the objective of the trip was a scientific expedition to specifically understand and speak about climate change while experiencing some part of the world where we can see something that you can hold on and hope for and say, if we keep our world safe and uh, secure and do not disturb, disturb it, this is what it would look like because part of Antarctica is still quite whole. So we spent time learning six hours every day about climate change in different ways. How does it impact different people, different places, and how can each one of us take the leadership that is needed? I have always been in the leadership of um, uh, women and advocacy work, and so was already involved in matters of climate change. Um, but what changed me was the ability to be with these women, many of whom are researchers, water managers, uh, engineers from the uh, Heathrow Airport, for example, medical practitioners that treat people not only on their physical health, but also mental health, etc. And really putting together how all of these things come, to, come together. And we can speak about climate change from many different possibilities using both data from science as well as the experience of people. And so that trip changed me. It told me that I can actually change the way of speaking and speak about how climate change has impacted the people in the place where I grew up, because I know it really well. I grew up where the rivers were flowing and we could see the water and it's a farming area and the farmers knew what seasons were going on. 
what seeds to plant and not to plant. And today that is not the case. So I joined many other grassroots women to be able to articulate in a language that people can understand about the impact of climate change and not leave it very far up in such a way that not everybody understands what we're talking about. Karine Sanchez, your activist path was ignited when you attended the Beijing Women's Conference in, in 1995. Tell us about that journey and also if you felt like you were privileged to be there. So for me, going to Beijing was um, an unplanned kind of uh, event. Um, because of Tay Women United, my mother and other women in our community who had been engaged in this work while I was away at school and college, they started Tewa Women United when I was uh, um, graduating from high school. Um, but to be able to come back during the summers and to see the power of women um, from my community, which is really has been impacted by colonialism and patriarchy, and to travel to Beijing, and I say this is where my my fire for activism and finding my voice and really stepping into that that light came as I witnessed thousands and thousands of women coming from all over the globe to just give voice to the concerns of their community. Stories of women that stayed for years and communities that raised money to send one or two delegates or representatives to that space was empowering. And for me as a young indigenous woman who heard and understood genocide, uh, the colonial history of our communities, the understanding of what that meant as far as impacts on economics, impacts on our access to health and education, what was taken away from our communities, our languages, and how that was related to environments. So coming from my Tewa community, my Tewatoa community, it's about the wholeness. It's about the interconnection. It's about understanding what happens across the globe is um, a direct result of what we're doing here. And what happens there is a direct result of what we're experiencing. And growing up with that knowledge was hearing the stories and hearing the songs, right? And going to Beijing really was a politicizing moment for me because it expanded my circle. Like I understood that there was these levels of impact that we had, but going and hearing the stories of women that were sharing what was happening, the continued genocide that is happening in this world. People talk about it being over and done um, part of history, but when we talk about that connections with our communities in South Africa, when we talk about our communities in the Philippines, the taking away of seeds of knowledge of that food sovereignty and seed sovereignty and pushing monocropping and pushing that impact and what we know of how that impacts our climate and where we find ourselves. It was there that I realized that I did have privilege, even though I am a woman of color, even though I'm indigenous, even though I was young, um, there was still a lot of privilege that I was um, gifted with in some ways here in my community. And there was a lot of ways that oppression and racism and classism takes that away and takes our power and our voice. But going there and realizing that though I was a survivor of sexual trauma and violence, that there were women that faced immediate death and murder and then also realizing, you know, it took Beijing, but re realizing that here now in the United States that there are women and families, indigenous women, as well as African-American women, our immigrant communities that face that eminent death, right? Because of these different systems and oppressions that are happening. But in Beijing, I saw the power of women being able to come together 
to really give voice on all levels, political, down to the mothers that were just trying to reclaim breastfeeding and reclaim birthing in their communities. And being able to bring that back to our community here and to really commit to that transformation that I witnessed in the stands, that I witnessed in the small classrooms of women gathering and knowing that this responsibility lays within my on my shoulders and also the generations to come. And, and so for me, Beijing just lit that fire and um, it hasn't stopped and it continues to be that we find the heart, that we find the compassion, even in those darkest times to make that transformation and the change that we need to. Thank you for, for sharing that. Earthrin Cousin, you're a, the daughter of a community organizer and a social worker. Where does your light and fire come from? I um, was born this way. At an early age, it was important to my parents that their daughters understand that though we lived in the inner city of Chicago, we grew up in a community called Lawndale, which is on the west side of the city of Chicago. Lots of books have been written about the challenges of this community, that we were blessed with two parents who had the ability to educate us and to give us um, an understanding that we were in the community, but not of the challenges of that community. And so they often drove us to communities where people had more and communities where people had a lot less to help us understand the, the, what disparities meant in real terms to real people and to give us a sense of responsibility for not just self and family and community, but ultimately that grew into responsibility for nation. And as my experiences progress to global community and recognizing that we have the, both the opportunity to and the, and the circumstances that demand that we all work together to ensure that we can provide for the sharing of prosperity across racial lines, gender lines, and color lines. And that does not come unless each one of us accepts that responsibility. Musimbi Kanyoro, many people hear climate change. They think of a polar bear, maybe a coal-fired power plant, maybe a solar panel. They don't think of a woman carrying water or a woman in general. So help us understand the connection between climate and, and women's issues, women's education, and women's empowerment? Those associations with, the, uh, say, polar bears not being able to have a place um, to be comfortable are relevant and they are important, or us uh, retaining uh, a global warm, warming of 1.5 uh, degrees is um, good scientific knowledge. But in, indeed, they are difficult for most uh, um, shall I say, normal people to understand and associate with. They are not wrong, they are just difficult. And sometimes they do not help people to engage. Those of us that are working now in the area of climate change have begun to use the frame of climate justice. And when we use the word climate justice, the really focus is to try to think of ab about the people that are impacted by the climate change, so that we can be able to tell the story in such a way that people can actually associate it uh, 
with something that they can identify with. So for example, there are rains and floods going on right now as I speak to you in my own country. People's houses have been swept away. A woman who was on the media yesterday talking about her family talked about the fact that she was a farmer woman and in their farm, they had all the harvest was ready for uh, being harvested and some of it sold, some of it used in the family and it was all swept away. So she has no house to go back to. She has no food. She has no income. And then she showed her two children, small children, who are likely to be probably um, affected by pneumonia or bilharzia or any of the other waterborne diseases and cold diseases. And then we are at the time of the COVID-19 as well. These people, these communities could not uh, talk anymore about distancing themselves, distancing themselves from each other. They could not talk about wearing masks. They could not talk about anything that we have in place about cleaning their hands because the water flows that are coming out of the floods are no longer clean water to clean their hands. All of that was swept away. Now, if you link that, what has happened in that place to what has been happening in regards to climate change, that these droughts, these floods, their impact on people and their impact on communities and the vulnerability of those communities that are poor. And specifically, this woman, whose name I will give us Maria, felt, and you saw her speak for herself, you really see that there is something completely amiss if we don't think of her as a person. And look for a way in which justice can be given to her. Attention on health, attention on, because when things like climate change happen, the impact on different, there is a difference on how or they impact people differently. Those who are vulnerable already, like poor, those who are women, those who are uh, uh, children, those who have disabilities, suffer in ways that are different from people who can mitigate these changes by themselves. Uh, these inequalities make people uh, experience vulnerabilities in different ways. And until we deal with those inequalities, uh, our words will address only those that have possibilities to do something about it. And there are others who cannot do something about it. Um, and so finally, I want to say that there are ways that we can talk about climate change by bringing it closer to the experiences of people. But also we can tell stories in different ways. We can tell stories in films. We can tell stories in podcasts. We can tell stories by bringing actually the actual people that have been impacted to tell their own story. And that is the loudest and the best way in talking about climate change. So that the scientists can be able to take this language of people and make it into a language that, that will engage people's emotions as well as people's intellectual thinking as well. Earth and Cousin, you've traveled a lot and talked to a lot of women uh, and you know, as the former head of the World Food Program. What are some of the stories that you've seen that, that powerfully connect uh, women's empowerment with, with climate resilience and climate justice along the lines Lucimi just mentioned? 
uh, I was listening to Musimba and Shay nodding my head, yes, 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 because her articulation of the experiences that that my travels have given me uh, just provide more evidence of, of where the anecdotes that that I can bring to you are based upon the the experiences not just of the women I saw but women around the world. For example, when I was in South Sudan after the country after it became South Sudan and we were meeting with women in the fields who had migrated back from Sudan after that war and, and we could talk a great deal about the conflict ongoing in South Sudan, but let's just talk about that period of time uh, when there was hope and women were given equal access to the seeds, to the tools, to the financial support, as well as uh, to the training that was necessary for them to plant and grow the grow maize. They were so proud to have the ability to grow a crop in, with other women in their cooperative that for the first time gave them financial resources, which gave them voice in their households that they did not previously have because they were able to bring money into the house and they were able to their collective efforts to support the, the school fees that were necessary for their children, as well as addressing their own empowerment, as we like to say. Uh, and the women said to me, this was the first time that they felt listened to. Um, but what we know is that the effects of climate change are result in more erratic rains. And that same woman and her cooperative, who has the access to finances because she can go a harvest, we've seen in subsequent uh, periods no longer having the ability to have the resources that they need and being forced to stand in a line. And what my experiences tell me is that when we give women equal access to the training, to the tools, to the finances, that they will grow the food that is necessary to avoid their need to stand in those lines. But that means that we need more climate resistant. We need more uh, uh, drought resistant seeds. We need more research into agriculture that is smarter, that continue to ensure the ability of that woman, her community, to have the, the opportunity to provide for both her food security and the economic security of her family. I have never in all my training, all, my, all of my work, met a woman met a family who wanted to stand in a line for food. Everyone wants to feed their own children. But when the circumstances don't allow 
them the access to the op that opportunity, it requires that we provide the provision of assistance that is necessary. And so we know that the projections of uh, a population are to nine and a half to 10 billion people by 2050, which means that we need to increase production of food by some 50% by 2050. We also know that women are the agriculture laborers that between 40 and 70%, for an average of 43%, 70% in some other countries. And we know that despite that significant percentage of women in the agriculture system, that they don't have equal access to, as I said, the tools, the finances, the training that is necessary for them to, to produce the harvests that are required in a climate-affected world. What that means then is that we can't solve the growing need for food access unless we equally invest in those women. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about finding climate solutions through educating and empowering women. Coming up, power, patriarchy, and reproductive justice. There's also this dark history that we really need to understand when we talk about long-term contraceptives and hormones and all of that impact on our, on our reproductive health. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about climate change and women's empowerment. My guests are Earthrin Cousin of the Stanford Center on Food Security and the Environment, Musimbi Kanyoro with United World Colleges, joining us from Nairobi, and Corrine Sanchez of Tewa Women United in New Mexico. Evelina Zhuang is a nurse and midwife who also teaches family planning and reproductive health in small towns and villages in Kenya. We asked her about the obstacles faced by the women she works with. Women in Kenya normally are not uh, mostly economically empowered, so they depend mostly on men in terms of their livelihoods. So even uh, whatever the woman would want to do, she has to get permission from the husband. So this would be a challenge mostly in terms of decisions on matters reproductive health. The husband has to agree with whatever she wants to do. And then the issues of myths and misconceptions surrounding reproductive health and uh, family planning. For example, that uh, when a woman is using family planning, either this woman will become infertile in future, which is not true, it's a myth, we realize that men were not well conversant with issues of contraceptives and also family planning. They were very green and ignorant. So what we did is we targeted men with information. Then they were realizing, hey, if we plan our families, then the health of this woman would be better. And also we are telling them that when you have a larger family, your economic status is also not stable. The challenges on population, health, and environment are integrated. There's no way one can ever separate the three. 
because with a larger population, meaning lesser resources available to these communities, then these people will be using the available natural resources. You know, the resources keep on depleting. When you empower a woman, you empower a whole community. Because when you give knowledge to this woman, and this is something that is factual, we've seen it, this woman is able to deliver this information to the whole community, and this thing will spread. That was Evelyn Ajuang. She manages a maternal neonatal child health and family planning program for Pathfinder International in Kenya. Overpopulation has been a key factor in climate change, leading to both increased carbon emissions and worldwide food and water insecurity. Therefore, family planning is seen as one way to combat global warming. But as Corrine Sanchez explains, the issue of reproductive justice has a complex and fraught history that goes back centuries. There's no way that we as women cannot be involved in reproductive justice issues because it involves our bodies and our choices and the long-term productivity or reproductive ability of our communities. And so I come from, you know, come from this in, in many different angles of thinking about um, contraceptives and thinking about um, reproductive health and thinking about um, a lot of different challenges that our communities face. And as communities that have had a targeted um, genocidal strategies against our communities, right? When colonialism happened, um, rape and assault and murder of our children and our women were a part of that strategy. It still continues to be a part of the military strategies across the world to wipe out communities, to take away their cultural sense of being, their mother tongues. And so as a community that has seen that impact of reproduction. We also had forced sterilization of Native women in our communities. We've also had the practice of people um, bringing in contraceptives and testing those in our communities. So I know that there's this upside and there's also this dark history that we really need to understand when we talk about long-term contraceptives um, and hormones and, and all of that impact on our, on our reproductive health. Um, and when we talk about the power and voice of women to choose. And I, I agree that as we become more educated and we have this um, medically accurate information, this, is, this exists in our Atking Healthy Sexuality Body Sovereignty Project that we've been um, implementing in our communities. As we give people medically accurate information, we trust that they're gonna make the decisions that best support them and their families. Um, so I don't want to say lightly that reproductive issues are, you know, just this, this, and this. They are about understanding that complex history and understanding the impositions of other people's religions and beliefs on other people's. Um, and how do we recognize the humanness and the humanity of all of us? And I want to go back to where we're at in this country of the United States, um, this colonial space where um, African-American babies are being murdered, um, not just in the womb, but as um, individuals throughout their lifetime. That um, our children, women of color, people of color's children are being murdered um, because they're being seen as different. And that is a reproductive justice issue, um, not just the contraceptives, not just the population control, but really understanding that history of um, how people have used domination over others to implement political policies and strategies that have erased populations, that displace people, 
we really need to understand in our communities the um, patriarchy and the patriarchal system, um, the beliefs that come in when people believe that they have dominion over others, um, and how do we talk about transforming that power dynamic in our individual households to our systemic societal levels? How do we have those deep conversations so that we can now have in our organization and in our communities, these conversations about engaging men and boys in the violence that's committed against women and girls because most of that violence is coming from men and boys. And so, so healthy masculinity and how do we talk about that? How do we talk about toxic masculinity? I think those are all pieces of that reproductive justice that needs to continue. Musimbi, you have a, a doctorate in feminist theology. Does addressing climate change mean kind of attacking patriarchy, some of the deep-rooted systems, you know, gendered power, male power and dominance that Kareen just talked about? Should that be part of the climate conversation? Yes, uh, it should be. Um, talking about um, any feminist, whether they are coming on it uh, to it from a social perspective, from a secular, from a theological perspective, etc., really talks about uh, justice. And one way for us to be able to ensure justice for women is to be able to address patriarchy because we are all victims of patriarchy. Patriarchy is a system, and it's a system that gave privilege to male persons and underprivileged the female persons. We as women and men are all victims of it, and we need to be able to speak out against it to be angry about it and to find ways in which we can be able to right what is wrong in regards to equality. And I think many people are working on this from many, many aspects of, of their lives. And in climate change, as well as uh, in the areas of sexual reproductive health, we cannot be able to get to the right answers without also addressing patriarchy. It's um, a difficult area, but when we think of sexual reproductive health for women, we think of it in terms of many different directions. I have learned by working for many years with Global Fund for Women, working with um, other organizations that address women, etc., that the health issue for women is important. If we are able to say, for example, in Africa, we say that 89% of all women, of women are in the informal sector supporting the most important aspect, food on the table, kids, etc., and if we are able to say things like 80% of farmers in Africa are women, how are they going to be able to run their work if every year, every nine months, they have another child? It impacts on their health, their ability to be able to work. Women sp spend um, on the continent of Africa, for example, 40 hours a week on just fetching water alone before they even do the other jobs that they have to do. So when we talk about making accessibility, reproductive health for women, we want women to be safe and to be healthy. And this covers many ways. It may cover family planning, which might be about spacing kids or deciding when, you are, when a woman wants to have a child and with whom, so that it's not forced. It might be uh, about pre or postnatal health. It might be about um, a contraception. It might be about having access to safe abortion. It might be about ability to um, get the information, age-appropriate information at the right time. Currently, I just want to say I'm very inspired by the courage of young people because young people are able to see 
quite um, a lot of how these things are interconnected. And I think that investing, we should invest in women and the leadership of women to be able to get the differences that my sisters on the panel have talked about. But we should also invest in young people and in the education of young people. And I see through the colleges that we work with in the United World Colleges, many young people are really providing leadership in these areas. And because they come to these areas without the stigmatization and patriarchy, without being extremely rooted in patriarchy in the way in which older generations have been rooted in, there really can be a future that opens up uh, some place that we could go to that is a better place than where we are today. If you're just joining us, we're talking about women's issues at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Earthrin Cousin, former executive director of the World Food Program, Musimbi Kanyoro, former president and CEO of the Global Fund for Women, and Corrine Sanchez, executive director of Tiwa Human United, uh, a grassroots civil rights organization in New Mexico. We're going to go to our lightning round. We'll ask a quick uh, association of our guests. I'll mention uh, person, place, or thing, and ask for their uh, first response from their heart off the top of their mind unfiltered. Karine Sanchez, what's one phrase or word that comes to mind when I say the new members of Congress elected in 2018? AOC, women power. Uh, Musimbi Kanyoro, true or false, inheritance laws discriminate against women in 26 countries. It's false because there are more countries than that. True or false, Corrine Sanchez, American capitalism was built on stolen land and stolen labor. True, true, true. Earthring cousin, true or false, the science is clear that GMO foods are safe for humans to eat. I'd say true. The science is, is, is clear and we are too often driven by misconception. We'll come back to that. Uh, Musimbi Kenro, true or false, some women enable patriarchy. True. Also for Musimbi, I have benefited from white privilege more than I realize. True. Corrine uh, Sanchez, I've been shaped by patriarchy so much that it's hard for me to see. True. Earthrin Cousin, as a talk show host, I should not ask women about gender issues unless I also ask men about gender. True. All right, that ends our lightning round. I made that mistake earlier this week and my female producers schooled me on that. So thanks for uh, thanks for that lightning round. Earthrin Cousin, you mentioned how much food production needs to increase to meet the demand of nine or 10 billion people on this on this planet. And industrial monoculture is one way that some people would say that food demand can be met. And I'm curious to hear whether that industrial monoculture is compatible with empowering women in the way that we've been talking about, or if that concentrates power in corporations in a very yeah, more con concentrated way. Increasing uh, global food production by 50% to feed that 9.5 to 10 billion people require diversity of solutions. And those solutions must include the 43 to 70% of women who participate in agricultural production. And that will include their participation in the existing systems of today, in organic production, in more biological and technological production that we'll see in the future. There should not be a solution that is sustainable both from a environmental as well as a social standpoint that we exclude. 
to ensure that we meet the opportunities for empowering all, both men and women, and feeding all uh, on a regular basis the nutritious food that is necessary to support the adequacy of our lives. I'm interested, uh, Musimbi, how you see GMOs and uh, industrial-scale monoculture. Are those in conflict at all with empowering women in agriculture? I have been at two uh, sides of this debate over the years. And I think that I had the biggest change when there was a large famine in Ethiopia. And I went to Ethiopia for work. And the GMOs were and other different ways, seeds and so on. And quick, quick growing foods were uh, being um, encouraged to so that people would be able to survive from, from farming. And I found that all of the words that I used to have to condemn the GMO were done just from a safe place when you are not there in the middle of farming. And I changed my mind. I changed my mind to say, we must do our best to ensure that any traditional farming, foods, seeds, etc., are not neglected in favor of only GMOs or other kinds of uh, farming. But we must know that there is a place sometimes for all of these uh, um, other possibilities, scientifically uh, grown, grown foods. I changed my mind in the middle of a farming because I saw what death looks like. Earthrend, climate disruption is hitting food production in many ways. Droughts and floods are impacting harvest. Growing areas are changing and pests are on the move. One particularly dramatic and devastating example is swarms of desert locusts that are ravaging crops in parts of Africa and Asia, threatening food supplies for tens of millions of people. You could say what's happening and what's at stake with these swarms of locusts? This is not the first time that locusts have affected uh, agriculture in Eastern Africa. But it is of a, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the largest uh, swarms that we've seen. And we also know that if we had invested last year in the eradication of the locust population, we would not be facing the challenges that we see today. Let me just put this into terms. A locust swarm in a field can consume the same amount in one day that 35,000 people would eat. Wow, wow, one day. And we know that in June or July, the locust swarms in Eastern Africa uh, will begin to hatch and grow. And what COVID-19 has done has limited the access to the tools that are necessary to eradicate the locust swarms. But I've been, I've been delighted to see over just the last few weeks an increase in access to those tools by the governments of Kenya, uh, Somalia, Ethiopia, that are now beginning, just beginning, the work that is necessary to eradicate. But I'd love to hear from to Musimbi, who is even closer to the actual uh, ongoing activities. The devastation is uh, terrible in the areas where the locusts have come. And they have been in Eastern Africa uh, all the way from Somalia and uh, arrived in Kenya, and we don't know, and in Uganda, in some parts of Uganda as well. And um, they really already defined that they will be farming uh, because they eat everything. And they have been in places which produce a lot of agricultural products, but they eat anything, including grass, anything that grows, they eat everything. 
Um, this is why uh, I think paying attention to science and thinking in advance can be helpful. But I, do not, I don't think that I could be able to blame all of these governments that they did not take science into account, etc. There are investments that are required long in advance. And also, uh, many of these governments have got so many things that they have to pay attention to. For example, right now, even though the locusts are really a, a big problem, the focus on COVID-19 by these governments is just so urgent and so pressing that you don't even hear much about locusts in the media anymore. We know that something is happening, but you don't hear as much as you hear on COVID-19. And so there are just quite a lot of things that people have to pay attention to. You're listening to a conversation about women's empowerment in addressing climate change. This is Climate One. Coming up, how food insecurity in other countries affects American national security. When agricultural production detrimentally impacts households, and particularly women-headed households, where sons believe they have responsibility for meeting the needs of their family, they become ripe recruits for al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations like ISIS. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about climate change and women's empowerment. Joining me today are Corrine Sanchez of Tewa Women United, Musimbi Kenyoro of United World Colleges, and Earthrin Cousin of the Stanford Center on Food Security and the Environment. Before the break, we were discussing the many ways that climate disruption is affecting food production in Africa and Asia, from floods to locust infestations. But we rarely hear about the threat between food insecurity and terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Herthrin Cousin connects the dots. We know that when there is food insecurity, when agricultural production detrimentally impacts households, and particularly women-headed households, where sons believe they have responsibility for meeting the needs of their family, they become ripe recruits for Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations like ISIS. We are seeing this impact now in the Sahel, for example, where ISIS and Al-Qaeda-related groups that have now infiltrated into Burkina Faso and Mali, Niger, are now uh, working to recruit the sons of uh, in, in families where they provide food and as an incentive for those boys, those young men, to join their organizations. And that is being exacerbated by COVID-19 now because of the lack of access to food makes these young men uh, even more vulnerable to the attraction of those who would provide the access to the food that the family needs. And so what climate and now COVID-19 are doing is, is exacerbating the challenges of poverty and low human development in households that are in areas that have been infiltrated by terrorist groups and organizations to making those young men vulnerable to the appeal of these groups. 
And so we know that the investment in, in agriculture, the investment in food security, the investment in economic opportunity provides a stability in the household and ultimately uh, the stability in the community that limits the attraction of terrorist organizations. Musimbi, the world seems to be turning inward these days with COVID. We're kind of sheltering, thinking about me here now. We hear a lot about community. We're talking about you know com women's communities around the world. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Is community strengthening now? Yeah, I'm uh, observing. And we who don't live in the USA right now are also quite uh, keen to see what is happening because you're really out in a pedestal. Everybody can see what is happening in the USA. There are three areas that I worry about COVID. One is that we had um, grown in the world a very strong globalization and sought globalization as something that is good. So, for example, in our United World Colleges, the reason that we bring students from every part of the world to study together in a particular college is so that we can be able to overcome the fear of differences and see that we are all human together and we can achieve a lot as human together. A COVID has in some ways uh, destabilized some of that because we had to hide quite quickly, get into our geographical places, and even not just stay in your geographical place, but inside your house and stay locked in. And we don't know what that is going to do to us. But at the same time, let me show the other aspect of it. There are a lot of webinars that are going on. I'm part of and I have listened to and sat into webinars. And people that used to convene 50 people are now convening 500 people, which means that we are actually hearing each other in larger forums than we did before. And um, that is really important. And we might also learn together that uh, some of the behaviors that we have embraced over time, for example, behaviors of destroying um, uh, the environment, but just too much travel, um, re putting resources that we have for ourselves, you know, getting on and doing something just a few people, we might realize that we could use some of those resources in different ways. Here we are talking and having uh, this conversation uh, while seated in our own uh, houses. We couldn't do that before we would come to a, a studio where you are uh, so that you could be able to get better quality of voice, etc., at the expense of uh, each one of us getting into a car driving to you or on a plane, sometimes for only 15 or 30 minutes or two hours or two days, uh, at most three days meetings. So there's something that we are going to learn about what we could do together. There's also, um, we, we have to guard against um, thinking, like in the area of developing vaccines, thinking that it matters who does it first. It matters that we do it. And I think what COVID should be teaching us is that the more collaboration that we have and climate work requires collaboration, collaboration and collaboration because it does not affect just one place. We are one world and COVID might show us that indeed we are one world because we see what is happening to nature, what is happening to fishes in the sea and to animals and to birds. They are having some freedom because we have got this one world. And lastly, I want to say that um, uh, the other aspect of it that is important is um, for us to realize that when the COVID is over and we get, no, it's not, it might not be over. We might learn to live with it or it might be over in different ways. But when we get a vaccine where many people have, need to get this vaccine, we have to see that we are, it, COVID has already shown light on the fact that the most disadvantaged ones 
are even more disadvantaged in the impact of COVID on their lives. We've seen in the USA, we hear of the African-American communities on our continents um, that are so-called developing countries. You will see that we don't have infrastructure that will be able to help us um, mitigate as much as some of the other places. So when the vaccine is available, to be human, we have to say everybody needs this vaccine and not privilege those people that have resources for the vaccines because that is not a way to go forward into the future. If That's we up next when Climate One continues. Together. Question from Barbara on Facebook. Uh, if governments were to ask their citizens to help by considering having smaller families, would that offer some new perspective to break the historical oppression that some women have experienced? Corrine? Okay. Um, I think it's much more complex than, than that. Would would the government asking me to do this when the government has imp, imp, implemented a lot of violences against us as indigenous women? Um, I find that a, as a challenge. I think our government should give us all access to um, universal health care, to access to contraceptives for free, all of these things. And then I think that women will make the decisions that best are in support of them, which in reality, when you look at it, when we're well supported, we're making the decisions to not have children. We're making the decisions to look at our, our budgets and our economies and think about that. So I think when you give um, women access to all of the information and the tools that they need, that they're that you're going to see that, that it does impact population in the ways that being forced to or being imposed to may or may not, um, may not show. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about empowering women. My guests were Earthring Cousin, former director of the World Food Program, and a visiting scholar at the Stanford Center on Food Security and the Environment. Musimbi Kenyoro, former president and CEO of the Global Fund for Women, now chair of the board of United World Colleges. And Corrine Sanchez, executive director of Tewa Women United in New Mexico. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>